1: Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today was a two-time All-American at Alabama under Coach Bear Bryant. During his NFL career in New England, he was named first or second team All-Pro ten times, and he played in nine Pro Bowls. He was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1991 on his first ballot. And when the NFL Network convened a panel of experts to determine the top 100 players in league history, he was ranked first among every offensive guard to ever play the game. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. John Hogg-Hanna. John, welcome.
2: Thank you. Appreciate that intro.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Uh, looking forward to, you know, kind of hearing some stories and hearing about the career and everything else. Um, so, John, you're, you're born in Canton, Georgia. Your dad right. your dad had been a, a star football player at Alabama, actually played for the Giants for a year, um, right. and was in coaching in Georgia, but decided that that probably wasn't going to make ends meet. So you folks moved to to Albertville, Alabama. And uh, t- tell me just a little bit about, you know, kind of your, your growing up years and all that. I know you went away to high school for a few years, excuse mm-hmm. me, in Chattanooga, um, and then came back for your yeah. senior year. Tell me a little bit about it.
2: All right. Well, yeah, I was um, basically my mother's father was uh, dead. Well, dad, first of all, was a World War II vet. Right. So he was a 30-year-old rookie. <laughs> and uh, so he, but he played a year. And then, but my uncle that was on the dairy farm that my mother's dad owned, was a little upset that dad was going off and playing football and still having a partnership in the dairy. So dad Dad gave up football to stay in the dairy business. So I was born on the backside of a dairy farm in Ball Ground, Georgia. And, uh, you know, the dad um, um, basically got into coaching uh, after that because, you know, there were some um ill will i guess between uh the sisters and the husbands and all that stuff so uh dad got he you know he taught and and then coached um football and coached uh girls uh, basketball a few other things and then when david my youngest brother was born uh Dad's, you're right. Dad says we can't do it on my teacher's salary. So um, he went to work for a um, poultry company, coaching, and, and um, then went to work. And so as a salesman, and uh, he and two other guys basically decided to form a partnership and they opened a company called Dixie Poultry. And then uh, Dad was doing all the traveling in Alabama. So Dad says, Let me have the Alabama branch and I'll go over there and y'all can have Georgia. And so we moved to Alabama when I was 12. Um when Deb was in the Navy, he uh, you know, was just an able-bodied seaman, you know, that's all but an officer recognized dad's part of work and asked him if he wanted to go to officer candidate school. So dad said, yeah. And it just happened that two of the guys that were in his OCS class in the pilot school. Uh, he was a TBM pilot during the war. Um, helped him learn how to use a slide rule. And uh, so dad made a promise to himself that if he ever had any boys, he was going to send them to Baylor if he could find a way to get it done. So Who's when I was in
1: the high school in Chattanooga,
2: in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yep. So we were living in Albertville. So dad uh, was a dorm student. I started my ninth grade year, uh, went to three years with Baylor. And uh, then uh, after Bay- after that, I just came back to Uh, I would have finished my senior year for uh, certain situations and uh, uh, then went on to Alabama.
1: And and so you go to Alabama where your dad and your uncle had played and where, Mm -hmm. amazingly, after you, your brother Charlie, who also played in the NFL, and your brother David also went, basically in the decade of the 70s, there was almost an offensive lineman named Hannah, and they were all all SEC. uh,
2: My dad played at Alabama. And uh, he graduated. He, I think 1950 was his last season. Then my uncle Bill played, and he was there when Coach Bryant came, so he went through that real rough time. So uh, there's there's two, and then there's myself, Charlie, and David. So there's five Hannah's that had played football at the University of Alabama, and uh, I had a a cousin, a first cousin, who from my dad's sister who was a wrestler
1: at alabama
2: hmm. so there's six out six six hannah family
1: members who
2: participated in alabama sports
1: that's amazing i read a great anecdote that your father when he came back from the war was actually thinking of going to clemson but they told right. him we can only give you two square meals a day here alabama said we can give you three off to yeah. alabama he went
2: that's exactly right that's and, Dad was extremely loyal because of that, you know, and uh, so my senior year when I was trying to decide which college I would go to, he asked me, what have you boiled it down to? I said, well, dad, (laughs) when he met my mom, my mom was a professor at the University of Georgia Hmm. and uh, that's where he went to OCS school. And uh, so anyway, uh, I said, well, I I like Georgia. You know, they've got a good office and line coach there and and seemed to go. And then Uncle Bill, who's coaching out in California um, at, uh, I think at that time he was at uh, Cal State Fullerton. And uh, he, Southern Cal had offered me a scholarship. And I said, I think about it. So it's Alabama, Southern Cal, you know going to Georgia. And he says, well, John, you know exactly that that I'll be with you and I'll be in the stands all the time and supporting you. But he says, the only thing you got to worry about is where are you going to eat when uh, you come home? So that made up my mind pretty quick as to where I was going to go to school.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And and it's amazing. So you're there under Bear Bryant. And There had been a couple of years in a row, which by Alabama standards just didn't sit right. I think your freshman year, freshman couldn't play, but your freshman year, the varsity was like six and five. And around the same time, Oklahoma and Nebraska were having a a heck of a lot of success with the wishbone offense. And so Bear Bryant decides, you know, deep into his career to switch up the offense. You know, he had a big mobile offensive line, obviously anchored by you, and he goes wishbone.
2: Uh, okay. Basically, uh, there have been about three years of, of six and five seasons. There was the year before I went to Alabama, uh, the year my freshman year, and you're right, we couldn't play varsity football as a freshman. And then my sophomore year. And it was between my sophomore and junior year that he decided to go to the Wishbow.
1: Yeah. And and the, the run of success. So your junior year, you're 11 and one, senior year, right. you're to obviously over the decade he wins eight sec titles and three national championships and it would seem to be a pretty good decision he made to uh I would to, think so. yeah <laughs> um and so so you're you're at alabama for those years and um a, a couple of one, one or two quick questions about your alabama years there's a lot of talk about In 1970, the Cunningham game, Sam Bam Cunningham, who would become your teammate in New England a few years later, he is obviously a black running back playing for USC. Alabama already had a black player on the roster, but he was still only a freshman, Wilbur Jackson. Wilbur, yeah. Yeah, but... the thinking was that Bryant wanted to kind of show, show locals in Alabama. Like we need to, you know, kind of rethink the way we're recruiting players. What was that like? Like, did you guys have a sense for that at the time, or is that something that's become kind of better known as the years have gone on?
2: I I don't think we knew it at the time. Uh, You know, we were, I think as you look back on it, you realize what I think, what he was doing. A lot of guys don't think he had that in mind, but what why you know we've got on that starting team there were probably huh, oh god knows what 15 starters or more that were either sophomores or first year juniors playing right and our i mean juniors and, and seniors playing and it's it was uh, a very rookie team you know and uh Why would you schedule Southern Cal your first time out the bat, you know, with that going on? So I I think there is a a purpose in it. And I think uh, when you look back on it, uh, that Southern Cal game probably did more to integrate Alabama than anything that ever happened. Mm. Uh, And it was, uh, you know, they did it. The difference was, you know, other people had tried to force it. You know, Alabamans don't like people forcing them to do things. And what they what they were able to do was to show the Alabama people the advantages of it. And
1: so then they welcomed it.
2: And I think that was um, a wise move on his part.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Would seem it. Um, And I should add, while you're at Alabama, in addition to winning your three letters in football, you also letter in wrestling. You had been a national high school champion. And you right. also letter in uh, track and field, throwing the discus and the uh, shot, right? Right. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> Three-sport athlete at Alabama. Um, so then so then you get drafted by the New England Patriots. And
2: well, that- I wasn't really a three. Coach Bryant, I asked him when I came to Alabama if I could play other sports. Not just you know, and he said sure. So what I would do is when we had spring training in the spring, he'd let me go to the meets, uh, but I I couldn't practice. I had to practice football, and, and then I just show up at the meets. So, so I, that was the extent of my track experience, so to speak. He broke his promise to me, you know. Yeah, but I that,
1: yeah. all right. It worked out, did it? Yeah. So um that's funny. So uh so then so you get drafted in the first round, 4th overall to New England when you're coming out of school. So this is spring of 73. Um and obviously, you know, kind of the attention and the focus on the draft has evolved. Um uh, but back then, you know, going 4th overall, obviously you know you're on the, you know, kind of the short list for a lot of teams. But was there as much like did you have a sense for who was really looking hard at you? Did you know you were going to be going to New England? Well
2: you you received a lot of mail from a lot of different teams uh probably the 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 team that sent me the most mail was the Cowboys hmm. um and you know I'd received a lot but Cowboys were kind of my team uh because you know we didn't have professional teams here at that time and uh, you know we watched a lot of teams where Alabama players went. That was kind of our following. And Leroy Jordan was there, and he was always kind of a hero of mine. And um, so, um, you know, I always kind of wanted to go to Dallas. But uh, you know, I didn't have any idea. Matter of fact, when uh, Chuck Fairbanks called me and told me I had been drafted by the New England Patriots, I didn't even know that that team existed, and I didn't know where it was located. So I had to, look, I got to go and call folks up, find out where I was going. I didn't even know.
1: That's amazing. That's great. And and you, like I mentioned, you, in that same draft, it's a pretty amazing draft. You, Sam Bam Cunningham, the guy from USC who, you know, we just talked about, Daryl Stingley, wide receiver from Purdue. Right. And deep in the draft was a big defensive lineman, Ray Sugar Bear Hamilton. Um, first of all, what was it like with, with you and Sam Cunningham when you, you know, you kind of met? I mean, obviously you'd played in this, you know, pretty much historic game. Or-
2: we, we, well, we had gotten – back then you had the college all-star game. Sure. And he and I and Daryl all went to that game. So we got to know each other out there pretty well. And, you know, we became friends and we got along great, I think, and, and got along well all our lives until Sam passed away about a year or two ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the team – the year before you got there, the team goes 3-11. and 11. They fire the coach. They bring in, like you mentioned a second ago, Chuck Fairbanks comes in from Oklahoma, you know, successful run at, at Oklahoma. Um, and he's got some pretty high profile assistants on the team, like Red Miller, who would take the Broncos to a Super Bowl. He's your offensive line coach. Um, what was and and Jim Plunkett, who had won the Heisman a few years before he's the starting quarterback. Um you get there, and Sam Adams is playing guard. Leon Gray is another lineman at guard. Um, who I know you he too. came
2: in this. Leon and I. Leon was drafted by Miami, and uh, Miami, we we traded and got Leon in. Um, so and Leon and I were the same age, okay? So, uh, Leon came in that year too, okay?
1: Yeah, so you guys all get together, and you know. Obviously, you're brand new to the league, and you've got a new coach, and, and there's you know quite a bit of turnover. What are you thinking as you come in the locker room, having come from Alabama?
2: Well, you got, I think the biggest thing, <laughs> I guess my thoughts were, um, I had never played really a pro set type football. I mean, I had to learn how to get in a three-point stance. I've been in a four-point stance for my whole career at Alabama so it was a huge learning experience for me and not only that but then you know you go out and you li- you're lining up and you're lining up in front of people that you kind of admired and respected and kind of looked up to and it was scary and uh so it, it really kind of took me to took me two years to get my nerves calmed down, and then it took me another year to really learn the position. And uh, so I think I really came into my own um, in seven, probably 76 is when I came into my own, 75, 76, right
1: in there. Okay. Was there any in those first year or two, like 73, 74, was there any like kind of welcome to the NFL moment where you're just going? Oh, gosh,
2: yeah. I'm here a lot of them. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Buck Buchanan. Uh, you know, I was weighing when I first played him, he was with KC, and I was weighing about uh, 255 at the time. And he literally picked me up off the ground as my and he's giggling at me. And uh, as uh, my toes are dragging on the astroturf, being pushed back to plunk it, and he just casually tosses me to the side, and you know it's awful so yeah there are those times I think the wake-up moment I was probably my end of my toward the end of my second year when uh, we were playing the Raiders and I was playing in front of Otis Sistrunk and uh, you know again my nerves were just crazy and uh, but anyway I remember I remember vividly Um, getting on the bus and sitting down and uh, saying to myself, I said, you're not hurt. He didn't beat you up. What are you doing being so scared? And uh, that was a kind of a come to Jesus meeting at that time, you know, and I finally got over that and started playing football instead of being
1: worried about who I'm playing in front of. Yeah. Yeah. And, you 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 mentioned Leon Gray. You guys formed a really strong partnership on that offensive line for the better part of you know better part of a decade. Um, tell me a little bit about that, like you you know kind of your first encounter with him. That's a pretty uh, symbiotic relationship between the guard and the tackle on one side of the line. Tell me about your relationship with Leon.
2: Well, Leon, now uh, when we came in, uh, he played right tackle. Next to a, a veteran guard named Lenny St. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Jean, and I played left guard next to Bob Reynolds, who had come from the Cardinals. That uh, you know, you talked about Red Miller. You got to remember when Red, when, before Red Miller came to us, he sent four of the five offensive linemen with the Cardinals to the Pro Bowl in one year. Mm. Wow. So he was a great offensive line coach, and. So anyway, he put us next to veterans for a year. And then we come in our second year and we started rooming together. They put us together and they moved Leon to left tackle. And uh, Leon and I um, worked hard together. Um, And the biggest, I remember going to a football camp one time. And one of the greatest compliments uh, Leon and I were showing how to you know at that time you ran you you formed a cup pocket and we showed people the you know how we would set and the depths and things like that and uh as we were doing as we got through the demonstration one of the guys there who was a pro and then he, he came over and he says, I've never seen anything like e t guys it's just like a dance team I mean yeah. you guys y'all do everything it's like and but it was Leon and I worked that way you know and we were roommates uh, I loved Leon I loved him to death matter of fact uh, if I'd have had a gun in seventy nine when they cut Leon I'd have shot Billy Sullivan. Uh, I really would have uh, Cause that would really upset me. Why would you take the best uh, left guard tackle tandem and pro football and split them up? You know, that's stupid. Yeah. Uh, but They didn't worry about that. All they were in it for was to cut payroll. So I'm part of it.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we'll, uh, we'll, I, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but yeah, I remember reading a quote from you, you said something like, it was just devastating and it told, showed me that these guys weren't interested in winning.
2: They weren't, they didn't care about winning. They didn't care.
1: Yeah, um, and so so you guys run this Patriots team, and and tell me a little bit about playing with Jim Plunkett, because obviously here's a guy he's winning Rose Bowls, he's got the Heisman, but and and ultimately wins two Super Bowls with Oakland, but he had a rough run in uh, in New England. I mean, obviously the team was well. You know, we also had a
2: rough time at San Francisco,
1: right? Right.
2: So you got to understand Jim and his abilities, and you got to understand how he played now jim's could could hit the eye of a needle with a football when throwing the ball i mean he, he could he could hum it sure but if you timed him in a 40-yard dash you better bring lunch <laughs> okay so the patriots in san francisco ran four and five man patterns which basically says that the quarterback's got to get rid of the ball in 2.8 to three seconds. Oakland, if you remember their offense, ran two and three-man patterns, or three- and four-man patterns. Right. That means they leave a guy in to help with the offensive line. Now you've bought your quarterback a four-second drop. Well, you give that, that extra second to, to Jim, well, he's going to take advantage of it and he'll kill you. So the issue was basically Jim didn't fit into the schemes that he was at previously, but he, he fit into the Oakland scheme perfectly. Right. So that's the issue. And and there's a lot of guys like that in the league who are great athletes and great players. They just don't fit into the system. And the best thing that a coach could do if they don't fit into that system is don't try to force it on them, but send them somewhere where they can fit in and make the best of their abilities.
1: Yeah. And so – and then – and as Jim is is kind of leaving, Steve Grogan is coming out of Kansas State. And Steve Grogan is, becomes one of the best running quarterbacks in, in league history um, and tough as nails too. Tell me a little bit about you know your kind of first impressions of Steve Grogan uh, when he came in.
2: I guess the best way to to say it, is, you know, when you're in that huddle, everybody's eyes are on the quarterback, right? And that quarterback has to exude confidence, and 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 everybody's kind of there. I mean, there's a lot of leaders. Don't get me wrong. But when you look at that quarterback's eyes, you've got to see confidence. And that's what you saw and see. He was confident and he was a leader. And uh, like you said, he was tough as nails. He had hold that ball longer than he should. And to give that receiver an extra step, uh, which would break him free. But uh, Groves was probably... As good a quarterback as there was, uh, but just uh, he was just a a great athlete and and a great leader and a great human
1: being. Yeah, and and the team all of a sudden the team you know you kind of three wins before you get there five wins seven wins, and then in '76 you guys break through, and in '76 you guys go eleven and three Um, during the regular season you crush the Raiders, and then you get to see you see them in the playoffs. And there is the very controversial play. We mentioned Sugar Bear Hamilton a few minutes ago. There's the very controversial play where he gets called for roughing that the not
2: that wasn't, that wasn't a controversial play. If you'll look earlier, we ran slant 19. And Sam Bam ran the ball. So Sam saw the yard marker that he was going to make the first down. So he went past, past the yard marker and stepped out of bounds. The chain crew had not stretched those yard markers. Yeah. So, when they stretched out the yard markers, there was no, the, the, he didn't make the first down. He missed it by a couple of inches. So, in essence, that play with Sugar Bear Hamilton should have never happened because oh, that would have given us a first down and we'd eaten the clock out and gone on to play the win the game. But pe- pe- people didn't notice that but that was that really happened
1: oh that's amazing and that and there are a couple of other amazing things that happened in that game
2: yeah it, it, it had been a drought in california and all of a sudden we had to wear long cleats because the field was so wet that was kind of an amazing thing too and we have right. a running game right so yeah. there there are several things that al davis did that day that was a little peculiar
1: yeah and and bill lencades is your center doesn't nope. get called for holding all year, fourteen games, not one holding call, and then he gets h- called three times in one game,
2: and he got called w- for holding one time, a couple of times when I was double teaming with him.
1: Yep, it, nope, I it.
2: It, it was unbelievable. It was a, it was a, but you know it's got like it like us in eighty five. I mean, in in seventy six eight the right Ra- you know the Raiders needed wanted a new stadium right
1: Mm.
2: and uh so we go out in uh in 85 and uh the the sullivans are trying to sell the team so they've got to increase the price so that's the way nfl takes care of business you know (laughs) when a team needs help they'll get them in the playoffs and do a few
1: things Well, oh, and, no. and I, also, I also read that Ben Dreith was the official for that game that we're talking about. And he did not call a Patriot game for another decade. I think it was 11 years.
2: He had a guy he killed. He, a guy, he hit, so We chased him out. We chased him all the way to his locker room and he locked the door. Where we could, we're going to hurt him. That's <laughs> We're going to hurt him bad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's amazing. Um, that's, and and uh, long about this time, a couple of things happened. First of all, that year, you guys put up one of the best rushing seasons ever. I think I think to this day, and that game was, you know, whatever, almost like 48 years ago or so. In 76, you guys had the fifth best record ever of rushing the ball. I think it was like 2,950 yards or something. And then two years later, you break that record. Um, and it's amazing because, I mean, the distribution was what was the craziest thing. Not 1,000-yard rusher. <laughs> Sam Bam runs for 800, Calhoun – Andy Johnson, Grogan. I mean, everybody's getting five, six, 700 yards. So it was a very well-balanced attack in terms of who got the ball and got the yardage.
2: And it speaks well of your offensive line. And, yep. You know, it, it, we had a, a, a great offensive line, you know, you had uh, Shelby out there at right tackle and uh, Sam Adams at right guard, Bill and Kitus at center, me, and then Leon at left tackle. And, Rush Francis was helping, and uh, I mean that was a it was a well balanced offensive line that could. You know, we made a lot of opportunities for our running backs, which, you know, it was it was great. Plus, we you know Andy Johnson was awfully underrated uh, because he he didn't have all the speed and the glamour, but boy, could he set up a block? He could do, he could do things that. Uh, he ran with his eyes, and he knew how to set up blocks. He he helped his offensive lineman out a lot.
1: Hmm. Interesting. And he, if if I recall correctly, he was a college quarterback too. Right. Yep, he yeah. was. That's amazing. That's just that's just good instinct. Um, and then and yeah, you you mentioned Russ Francis. I mean, I think Howard Cosell called him All World. Uh, what was it like when he came in? He had had like a national record for Did the Jets. What my second year or third year in the league, something like that. Yeah, I think he came in in 76. Okay, six- so it
2: would have been my third or fourth year.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, you uh, know he, what, what? He came in 75, 75.
2: His, his personality of mine didn't go real well. I mean, I respected him and, and liked him, but, you know, we weren't, you know, I, he was kind of a, uh, for lack of a better word, a calif- laid back Californian. And, uh, <laughs> I, I just didn't think that was the way you were supposed to approach football, <laughs> you know, you're supposed to go after it. And um, anyway, I, rem- I guess when I really made a horse's rear end out of myself was we were on a two-week uh, camp. Uh, you know, when we were in football camp, we had a two weeks out in, in uh, California. We went out and played. I think San Francisco the first week, and then we stayed and uh, practiced in California. Then played LA the next uh, weekend. But uh, he got hurt against San Francisco, and he comes out to practice with flip flops on, and that didn't real sit that didn't sit well with me at all. You know, not from the Coach Bryant team. That just didn't sit well at all. Did you let him know it? Oh yeah. That, that, I made, like I said, I make a horse's butt out of myself, but you know, that's not the first time, won't be the last. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny.
1: Um, and then, and then I, I read, a, I mean, it's a great story. I'm sure it was miserable going through it, but you're at the Pro Bowl, I think it's after the 77 season. You and Leon are both there, and um, Gene Upshaw, who at the time is still a player, he's not running the union, asks everybody to. Anonymously state what their salary is. Like I, I don't know if you wrote it down. So we just
2: it what he did was had us to write it on a piece of paper and throw it in a hat. Okay. So he pulled out the salary out of the hat and we just quote salaries, so nobody knew who
1: the other guy was making. And, and you, you too so the numbers are being read off in this room of all pro players, and you, you, you know, you, you and Leon talk afterwards, and you're like, I know what my number was. Was yours the other really low number? And he was like, Yep. So to I, tell
2: was, you- I, was, I made, they they read out a bunch of nineties and hundreds out there. And all of a sudden they hit 30 and 28, five. And I get back to the room. We were staying in San Diego at the time. I believe. Yeah, we were San Diego. And, uh, cause we were playing in Seattle, I think was the pro bowl. Well, I think it was at Seattle. But anyway, um, uh, um, I get a phone call and I answer, I said, he says hog. I said, Yeah, big dog. He says, Which one were you? I said, I was 30. I said, which one were you? He said, I was 28 and five. And that's when we got Howard Schleser to, you know, try to get us. And that was in 77 was the only year Leon and I didn't make the Pro Bowl because it was the year we held out for salary.
1: Yeah. And what was how much? What was that like holding out? I mean, how much pressure was the team putting on you, like the coaches and the oh, other players?
2: The coaches understood, right? Matter of fact, had the we, if you remember the way we did it, <laughs> we went to camp and practiced with the team, mm-hmm. and uh, we said we're going to stay here until the last preseason game but if we don't have a contract by the last preseason game we're walking so we practiced all the way up to the night day before the game and we said that's it and we walked and anyway the night after the game uh Fairbanks calls Leon and I and said come to the house we want, I want to talk to you so we went over his house he says look and Howard Slush both they all they said we we've, we've got an agreement here he says, uh, it's not the best deal we could have gotten, but it, it's workable. It, it's fair. And he says, I think you ought to sign it. So we were ready to sign the contract. And uh, Chuck Fairbanks uh, said, well, let me go get one more confirmed with the Sullivan family. And we were sitting down, and we could hear Chuck Sullivan crying like a baby, they're going to break us. They're going to break us. And <laughs> they refused to give us a contract. And that's, you know, that was the first strike one on Fairbanks as far as why he left the team. That was the first go around. There's other
1: issues that
2: happened later on, like with Daryl and things like that. So.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So, so he, obviously he's the coach, he wants his best players on the field and he works out like kind of an agreement with the ownership, brings you guys in. And then at the last second, the ownership fades and says, no, we're not going to sign it. Right. That's amazing. It's amazing. And then uh, ultimately, how many games did you guys sit out?
2: I don't know. I I don't even remember.
1: Well, I think some reason I think it was like three or four.
2: I think that's yes, that sounds about right. Three or four. Well I know we we when we came back, I think we opened with Seattle in fact. And uh I remember um, we had Leon and I had a, a bunch of death threats on us and they didn't allow us to sit next to each other. And uh we had he sat on one end of the bench all the way on one side and I sat away on the other side. And uh we each had a, a secret service guy or whatever you call it would stand behind us to guard us. And so about the fourth quarter, I talked to my guy I said his name was Louis. I said, Louie, I mean, I appreciate you standing behind me, you know, for gunshots back there. But what if some guy's got a scope over on the other side of the field? He said, that's your tough luck. So <laughs> that, that, that was my remembrance of my coming back. Uh, to play in the game. But we got booed a lot and thrown, you know, got beers thrown on us and all that stuff. So that's
1: yeah. part. I mean, and you'd, you'd think that the, the ownership, upon hearing that, you know, the other all pros are all making 90, 100, 110, and his two- Well,
2: owners pros- know what everybody's making. Yeah. They don't they didn't have a
1: secrecy agreement. Right. You know. so they, they just have no shame. They don't care that they're devaluing their stars.
2: They had a monopoly. There's no free agency. If they drafted you, they had you. Uh, you could had no choice to go anywhere. You had to play for a team. And, you know, no matter how hard you wanted to get away from them, I mean, unless they granted it, you weren't going to do it. That's like, you know, later on when I don't know, you may be asking me this later, but I know when, uh, you know, my brother Charlie, that year, that same year, Charlie was holding out. My brother Charlie was playing at Tampa Bay and he was holding out for more money. Now, he loves Tampa. Now He loved Tampa. Never wanted to leave. So the family has a gathering. We're going to go down to the catfish cabin in Gunnersville, Alabama and eat some catfish together as a family. And Charlie's late and he's late and he shows up about an hour and a half late and he's all hang dog. You know, he's all open mm. and at the same time i'm holding out and and uh this and i i'm thinking this is what no this is 83 i think yeah it was 83 and i'd heard that al davis was interested in me and so i said he wants to win I'll, i'd i like to go there and i think i'd fit well within their system mm. so anyway i i said you know, that'd be good because that was when Ron Meyer was there and he and I didn't get along real well either. And uh, Charlie comes in all crying. He said, I've been traded. Been traded." I said, where have you been traded, Charlie? He says, the Raiders. I said, you stole my job. <laughs> so they, Charlie goes to the Raiders they give him number 73 he was 76 they give him number 73 which is my number they move him from right tackle to left guard my position and he wins the super bowl <laughs> first year so you know it just wasn't in the cards for me you know what i mean it just yeah. was in the
1: cards Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I didn't know that story. That's, that's that's crazy. You took my spot, man. That was my job.
2: <laughs> that's right. That was my job.
1: <laughs> um, and, and I have to ask you also, uh, well, 78. So, you know, obviously Chuck has now been the coach there for like five or six years. And this is the year two years prior, you guys have the fifth best rushing team of all time this is the year that you guys become the greatest rushing team of all time. Oh, by the way, a record that stood for like 40 plus years, uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, But, and again, it's, it's like a very balanced attack. It's Sam Cunningham, it's Horace Ivory, it's Andy Johnson, it's Grogan, everybody rushing for kind of six to 800 yards. Um, And your offensive line coach that year is Jim Ringo, hall of famer from the Packers. Tell me a little bit about playing for, you know, a hall of fame Offensive lineman?
2: Jim Rango is one of a kind. He's he, he was the best. I love that guy. God, love that guy. But anyway, uh, I had two great offensive line coaches. I had you know Red, and mm-hmm. Red got me to a level that was unbelievable. Well, then we had another guy that was not up to the task, so to speak. Who's that? I'm not going to say. Okay. So anyway, uh, we, uh, when I came in as a rookie, um, Coach Fairbanks called me in his office and the first thing he asked me, he says, What do you want to accomplish here? And I said, Well, you know, I, I want to win a Super Bowl. I, he says, well, Everybody wants to win a Super Bowl. Everyone wants to win. What do you want to accomplish as an individual? And I said, Well, you know, I've always wanted to be the best that ever was. And I said, I'd like to be the, you know, best at my position. And he said, well, what is that going to take to get you there? I said, well, I, I guess the biggest thing is a coach. Someone can teach me how to play and and correct mistakes and show me how to, you know, do things better. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I remembered that. And he said, well, what do you think about Red? And I said, nah, I'm learning more than I've ever learned under Red. So anyway, we had this bad coach in '70. What seven, six, seven, something. Anyway, I went to Coach Fairbanks and I said, Coach, I said, You remember that meeting we had when I first came here? He said, Yep. He said, What's going on? I said, This coach ain't gonna get me where I need to be. He says, Okay. So very next year I walk in and there's Rango. Wow. So Rango's there, and I'm just I'm excited, right, to learn because I would seen Joe DeLummeleur and I had become friends, and he told me about Ringo, and 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 I learned a lot of techniques from Joe that he had learned from Ringo. And uh, so anyway, uh, I kept waiting for Jim to, to coach me, and he just kept away from me and stuff. And so a week went by, and he hadn't even said boo to me. And I went to him and I said, Coach, I said, I was hoping to be coached by you. Why aren't you? Why haven't you been, you know, getting on me and stuff? He looked at me and he says, I was waiting for you to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, I'll start coaching you now. But what he was, I mean, what he was doing was he was checking me out. Am, am I some arrogant little, you know, player that's not going to listen to coaching or am I really wanting to be coached? yeah and found out that I really wanted to be coached and he took my game and took it from one level to a totally different level. uh it was just the things he knew from having been a player, And how to do things were unbelievable. Not only that, but the attitude. I remember, you know, I was playing against Hans Johnson's one time, and I had a real problem with, you know, sometimes I let my temper get away from me. And um, he had beaten me. And and the more, every time he beat me, I'd get madder. And the more I'd get madder, the worse I'd play. And you know how that goes. Sure. This is Gary Big Hans
1: Johnson. Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, Hans Johnson, you know, Larry And so anyway... Ringo comes over to him, he says get your over on the bench and, he's, and he's, you sit there and so he benched me and uh I'm sitting there and he came, and when the guys went out on the field he came over to me he says I want you to think of he says I want you to think what is he doing to you that's beating you and what do you need to do to stop it when you've got that figured out, then you come and talk to me. So it taught me, instead of getting all fired up and all this stuff, it's a, it's a more of a, you know, it's a thinking game.
1: Yeah, cerebral.
2: Yeah, it's a cerebral. He taught me the cerebral part of the game. Hmm. And um, not only that, but a lot of other things. And and uh, But Jim Ringo was... There will never be another offensive line coach like Jim Rango. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Um, and that's and that and that becomes a chaotic season. 78 is chaos because on the one hand, you guys have a, a, a good run. You're 11 and five. But in the preseason, sadly, Daryl Stringley is paralyzed on a hit out in Oakland um by Jack Tatum. And he's obviously in the hospital in the Bay Area, and it just so happens that a couple of weeks later, you guys are coming back to play the Raiders in the Bay Area, and so everybody visits um, Stingley in the locker in the hospital. But in the meantime, apparently, and I'll, 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 I'll I want you to tell the story, but apparently, a contract had been agreed to. Oh yeah, Stingley and well, Sullivan before that fateful trip. Right. Tell, well, tell me a little bit about that
2: very simple. Daryl basically did the same thing Leon and I did the year before. He stayed at camp until we made the road trip to California. And he said, if we don't have a a contract agreement uh, before the California trip, he said, "Um, I'm not going to go on the trip. So Fairbanks said... They agreed to a contract right before we got on the bus. And and Daryl says, I'll agree to that. Him and Jack Sands, who was his agent. And he says, uh, um, we'll, I'll sign that contract. And so Fairbanks looked at Daryl and said, Daryl, um, I know we don't have it on paper, but he said, we've got a verbal agreement. And, um, you know, it'll stand in, in court and everything else. So would you make this trip with us? We really need you. And Gerald says, sure. So he gets hurt. Well, what the media told the public was that how gracious and kind Chuck Sullivan was to give him all this money. That wasn't a kind gesture. That was a settlement on the courtroom steps with Jack Sands, they yeah. weren't going to a diddly squat. And that was strike three for Coach Fairbanks. And if you remember, that's the year he went to Colorado and left the Patriots. He just, he said, and he, he told the team, he says, I can't. He says, if you guys can't trust me, I can't coach you. And so he said, I can't be here where I'm being overridden all the time. And that's when he left. And everybody knew he was going to leave. Right. Uh, you know, because why else would the guy from continental airlines be at every monday practice you know we knew he was leaving right. uh but we were going to have a, that was our, you know we were still sticking for that 78 season we thought we could you know do go
1: places and
2: we could have i think had it not been disrupted so badly
1: yeah by the way what what was the continental airlines one i, I missed that
2: the guy from car continental, the big alumni guy from uh colorado
1: Oh, oh, okay. I uh, no,
2: Airlines. he was in the meeting every Monday. <laughs> we knew we knew what was going on. We knew he would get coach Fairbanks was heading out,
1: okay, yeah, and so, yeah by, by the end of the season and then and then one of the I mean it's every, it's crazy every now and then you're doing a little bit of research and you, you've come across something that I just never seen before. so he's coaching you guys that year. you guys are good. you're eleven and five. you're sure. in the playoffs. you're playing the oilers. but in the meantime, the Sullivans, get wind of the fact that he's he's like one foot out the door to Colorado, they suspend him for the last game or two of the regular season.
2: But We're getting ready to play Miami the last game of the season. Oh, you know, okay. We always played Miami at the end of the season because it, it was cold in New England and the Sullivans wanted a nice warm vacation the week before, you know. So we always had to go down there and play in Miami's heat after freezing our tutu and getting out of shape, right? Right. In that heat, so we could they could have a vacation. So, anyway, um, we're getting we came in from warming up, and the Sullivans come in and kick Coach Fairbanks out of the locker room.
1: This is in the minutes before a game,
2: right before the game, five minutes before kickoff, and and they have more. Earhart as the offensive coach and and uh, uh, Bullock as the defensive coach, so we didn't have a head coach. We had an offensive coach and a defensive coach. And Fairbanks was kicked out of the out of the locker room.
1: He's just in the stadium. Yeah, I mean,
2: I've seen he... it. This was, I mean, this, you got this was those guys were idiots. Let me tell you,
1: <laughs> were... it's crazy. But here's the craziest part. So so that happens – then the next week you're in the playoffs and they bring him back into coach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, it's like either 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 fire him or don't fire him. But like to, to can him, you know, to, to kick him out of the room right before the game and then bring him back for the playoffs and then no wonder, you know, little wonder that you guys lose to Houston the next week in the playoffs. Um, yeah, so so basically that team, that 78 team is a good team, but you've just got chaos, you know, from management, oh, gosh, from sure management on down. Um, And then it's after that, that's when they let Leon Gray go. And that's when you said, now I know that they're not about winning, which as a professional athlete, you know, as a man, that's crushing.
2: It's more than crushing. It's, you know, why? You you quit playing for team and you start playing for self. Mm. Uh, You know, it's a real temptation just to play for self. And um, it's, which takes all the fun out of it. Yeah, um, you know because you know there's nothing like a locker room, you know, uh, the closeness, the camaraderie of your you know teammates and stuff, and you know for everybody not to be on the same page, um, it really it's, it's you know it's just devastating, you know right. my whole my whole. I wanted to win a Super Bowl. I, before I left my you know, my career, I wanted to be a Super Bowl champion. But
1: that's part of it.
2: Yeah, you know that's not the way the world works, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then, and then I, I'm always curious. Like it's just always interesting to see like some personnel moves. Like I I interviewed Dan Pastorini um, a little while ago, and they had Steve Largent in, in camp, and they cut him down in Houston. And I asked him about that. He's like, oh, man, he's like, you know, I'm telling Bum Phillips, this guy, this guy's got good hands. He runs a perfect route. You know, what are we thinking cutting him? And I I was looking at the Patriots. So right within the same year or two of each other, you guys had Steve McMichael, who now looks like he's going to be probably a Hall of Famer. And you had Bob Golick, who turns out to have a great career as a linebacker in the NFL. When you see them on the team, and then within a year or so of making the team, they get cut, traded, sent away, whatever. You know, are you kind of sitting there going, "What are we doing? These guys are good."
2: What happened was, you got Ron Meyer that came in, our our uh, coach Earhart who came in. It was the head coach, sure. And then you had Dick Steinberg who had sucked up to the to the Sullivan family, Mm -hmm. and Dick Steinberg wanted to be the controlling force of the Patriots, and so he deliberately. Uh, started cutting guys and getting rid of talent and not replacing talent
1: hmm.
2: in the draft so that Ron Earhart would look bad and then he could bring in his own coach and i.e. when Ron Meyer came in
1: oh wow wow okay so
2: there was a whole political Good. ball game going on there
1: okay yeah so yeah and Ron Meyer I mean it's it's it has happened a few times where a college coach comes in and has success in the NFL, but most of the time it doesn't. And Ron Meyer has come in from SMU and immediately just, you know, kind of struggles as as a head coach.
2: There are football coaches in college that understand the game and understand the philosophy of the game and how it's played. For instance, Chuck Fairbanks, unbelievable organizational skills, number one. Number 2 didn't have an ego. He would always hire people that knew more about the game than he did. Hmm. Number 3 is he had an unbelievable eye for talent, not only player talent, but coaching talent. So he brought he brought that to it. Other college coaches all they have is a great ability for public relations
1: right like the the recruiting and the hyping of the program
2: but the recruiting doesn't help in pro bowl
1: right right yeah so you guys are going through so you, so ron myers comes in and um you know comes in from smu and he's hard to deal with i am curious um about that time well you had a couple receivers on the team that I'm curious your take. Harold Jackson, like a, you know, kind of a veteran receiver had made his name in a few other cities. And then Stanley Morgan who could jet out of uh, Tennessee. What'd you think of those guys when they were running patterns together?
2: What I remember most is when they came into camp in 78, mm-hmm. after Daryl had gotten hurt. Yeah, that's when we got H.J. Yep. And I remember um, we would always sit under the, this, uh, we call it the tower, but it was a platform that they would raise to film practice. We would sit under it for shade before practice. And the you know, Stanley and HJ had been mouthing at each other about who was fastest and this and that and the other. So they get they've got football pads, pants on and, and t-shirts and football shoes on. So they go down there and they say, go, and they click the clock. And both of them crossed the finish line in 4-6. We all looked at each other and said, we've got some receivers now. 4-6
1: yeah. impacts.
2: It was just unbelievable. Who are you going to double team, right? You, who are you going to double cover? Th- those guys are unbelievable. And you talk about – you know, guy's in the Pro Bowl. There's a guy that needs to go in the Pro Bowl for sure is, is Stanley Morgan. You look at his numbers, his numbers are better than most of the receivers that are in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Stanley needs to be in there big time.
1: Yeah, he had a long, productive career. And and about that time, you also got on the defensive side of the ball, Andre Tippett came in from Iowa. What was your first thought when you saw him across the line?
2: Remember, that he, he came in. At when, at when Ron Meyer came, remember? That's when Steinberg started actually drafting talent again.
1: Right. All of a sudden, his guy's the coach now. Yeah, he's the
2: guy now. He accomplished his goal, so now he wants to start recruiting talent. Well, not only did he bring in Tippett, he brought in Donnie Blackman and a few others. I mean, he recruited – there were some really great – he got some really great defensive talent in yeah, and, uh, you know Ronnie Lepad at uh, at the corner. brought him in. And brought. Uh, They're just a lot of good ball players, sure. uh, and yeah, and it was just it, Andre's a great ball player. Right? He, I was scared of him a little bit. I was afraid he'd do some of that kung fu on me
1: or something. That's right. He was a black belt, wasn't he? Oh yeah, yeah. it Really, is amazing when you think of. Those Patriots teams, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but you know, run by the Sullivans. You have, you know, uh Stingley getting screwed on his contract, you and Leon, you know, kind of having your issues. Russ Francis decided to like, you know, walk away from the game and then ultimately got traded. Um, Mike Haynes, one of the best cornerbacks in NFL history, he was on the team. He forced a trade. Like it's just amazing. If you were talented on that team, you well, wanted to hell out.
2: Let's let's go a step further. Leon Sam Cunningham. Sam Cunningham mother dies, single single parent. And he's got it, and so Sam has to go home, bury his mother, make sure his siblings, Randall, and the rest of them, are taken care of. And that they're being watched. So Ron Meyer calls him up and says, You got to be back at camp by next week. He said, Well, I haven't got my family's settled yet and I haven't got them in homes. He says, give me until I'm working as hard as I can. He says, give me a chance. Just get my, my my brothers and sisters into a a home where they'll mm-hmm. be taken care of. Meyer said, if you're not back here this weekend, I'm going to cut you. And he said, well, I can't. And Sam says, well, I can't leave my family. And Meyer cut him.
1: Wow. Is that how Sam's Career ended in New England, getting cut that way. Yep, that's how his career ended. That's amazing. That's just amazing. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I, heard-
2: I mean, these are these are. Now you know why I wanted free agency so bad during my whole career. And it's yeah. just you know playing for guys like that. This I, I won't. You know, I tried not to let it get to me, but I wonder sometimes what how. Could, could I have been better? Had I been playing in a better situation?
1: You know, you wonder about that, right? Could I? I don't know. You know. But. And then, and then, and then the crazy one. So Rod Russ, Rod Russ was the defensive coordinator, right? Was he DC? Yes. So he, so he's he and Meyer are having issues. Meyer fires him. Right. And basically, management says you can't fire him. You don't have that authority. So Meyer turns around and gets fired <laughs> and they they bring in Ray Berry, who's all a uh, uh, hall of fame wide receiver. And I think it was Tony Collins said something like Ray Berry got more respect in our locker room in five minutes than Ron, <clears throat> than Ron Meyer did in three years. Uh, what was that like when that whole transition was happening?
2: Well, I think it was, uh, it was a great thing. I think re- you know the 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 only thing that Raymond, as a head coach, I think his only fault was that he, you know, I, sometimes a head coach has to kind of make some tough decisions sometimes, and 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 I think sometimes he relied too much on his assistants to make decisions or allowed them to make decisions. You know what I'm saying? that weren't right. And I think Raymond knew it, but he didn't want to be dictatorial. In some situations, you've got to be dictatorial. And um, so that was the only thing that I saw with Raymond. But Raymond was a great coach. Uh, um, One of the things he did um, for me was, you know, the, the biggest thing I remember is, he would go around to guys and he would say, he'd call me in and says, I want you to do me a favor. He says, I want you to, on Monday, I want you to grade yourself. He says, but I, want, I don't want you to grade yourself based on whether you beat the guy or the guy beat you. He says, what I want you to grade yourself on is, did you when from the time the ball snapped until the time the whistle blows, did you give it 100%? Everything you got. Hmm. So I said, okay. And so anyway, he uh, I, I did. And I was after the game, I, I mean, I was completely worn out. But I, he called me and he said, Well, what'd you grade? And I said, 74%. <laughs> That's it. Because what would happen is, you know, the back would be way over here. And so you'd run, but it'd be that seven eighths you know, kind of run. It wouldn't be a a full all-out sprint. And he said something. He said, John, you know, most football games in the NFL are one, basically three or four plays a game uh, determine who wins. Mm. He said, but the problem is, is you don't know when those plays are going to occur. Right. He said, what if you had been down there and, and one, the, one of the receivers or running back had cut back and had fumbled the ball and you recovered it or instead of the defender? Or what if you were down there and he cut back and you, made the, you sprung the block to go in for a touchdown? Hmm. He said, you never know when those things are going to happen. And so he taught me the importance of, of giving it everything you've got every play. And really, when you do it that way, when you think about it, really that's that's more of being a winner than whether you beat somebody or not. Is are you giving it, you really, you know, you can't, sometimes you can give it, you know, you can beat people, but you're not really not giving it all you got. And then sometimes you can get your butt handed to you and you are giving it everything you've got. And But what really matters is, when, it, when you boil it all down to it is, am I giving it everything? Am I really selling out? And the the more you can do that, uh, and the more often you can do that during a game, you know, that's going to make you a champion. It, it will happen. And that's so, what he taught me.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I remember reading something about him when he was a player, might've even been before his NFL career, like in college, that somebody, some writer or something was at a high school stadium down in Texas and they saw him out on the field and he's just running patterns and then stops after every play, after every pattern by himself, no football, just running patterns and marking something off on paper. And the writer came up to him afterwards and said, what are you doing out there? What is that? What am I looking at? And he said, I pull random games out and I just run every play that we ran in the game to just perfect my routes in like game speed, you know, kind of time. And I just thought, wow. And
2: and, and not only that, but what he would do, for instance, when he studied film, he would, when he played and he taught it to our receivers, you know, he would like, let's say he's running a a dig or some sort of a, a, let's say a curl or something like that. He would count how many steps it would take before the defensive back would turn to run. Hmm. So he he and the Unitas would get together, and he'd say, well, I think he'll turn on the eighth step. So they would practice all week, and on the eighth step, when that defensive back would make his turn to run, that's when Raymond would turn up and and curl up to the quarterback. So this is the position of the precision in which he studied films and his opponents were amazing.
1: Wow uh and that sets up the 85 season, which is your last year now did you know going into that season that was your last year or did you decide to retire afterwards?
2: Uh, afterwards I had uh as soon as the game was over with I went in and had both my shoulders operated on and mm-hmm. I thought I was going to come back even after that and play again. But also, after I got where I could move around a little bit, because, you know, it takes six months to get shoulders back. Mm-hmm. So that was first. And I had my knee done. And I told Bert Zarin, as I said, if I ever get to where you think I'm going to cripple myself, I want you to let me know. Because I'd torn a posterior cruciate ligament in 77 which that the doctor, team doctor at that time had told me it was a sprain. So I go down, my Charlie was down at uh, Tampa. So I go down there to uh, get my knee checked. And the doctor said, well, you tore in your posterior cruciate and you got some cartilage damage. And I said, well, can we fix it? He said, well, the only way we can fix it back then in 77 was to reroute your hamstring. I said, well, is it success- successful? He said only about 50% of the time. He said, well, I said, well, what would you recommend is just play as long as you can keep it strong. Mm. So that's what I did. And, uh, after that 85 season, uh, they came in and uh, basically sucked all the cartilage out and, uh, Bert Zerens, who was uh, our team physician, called me in and said, uh, John, remember that conversation we had when I became the team doctor? I said, I do. He said, it's that time. Hmm. He said, if you keep going, you're not, you're not, you won't be walking. Got it. And so I said, okay, that's it. So that's when I retired. That was when I decided.
1: Okay. So, you, so during the 85 season, you didn't know that that this was your last year because oh. you, guys, you guys put together one of the great playoff runs, you know, of, of that era. You go, you beat the Jets, you beat the Raiders, you beat Miami in some slop. You've got Craig James, who had been a star at SMU, went to the USFL, basically had that one big year and then injuries kind of ended his career. But what was it like blocking for him? Because he, he ran for like twelve hundred yards or something like that.
2: Craig was Craig was getting um, beginning to come into his own. Craig came out of a college uh, atmosphere where he didn't understand how to set up blocks. He just tried mm. to outrun everybody. He he did he ran based on talent rather than on skill. Mm. And nobody at that time we didn't have a coach that could eat, actually teach him how. And you know we tried, uh, you know, but uh, I guess. You know he did. He didn't understand that. You know that blazing speed that he had. You don't use the blazing speed uh, until the block has been thrown and you're in that second level. He 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 would outrun his blockers a lot of times. Uh, One of the famous clips uh, against the Raiders was me throwing a cut block on a guy and him going in for a touchdown. Well, the reason I threw a cut block was because he outran me he was ahead of me so i had to leap to make the block or otherwise he had been tackled right so and, and all he had to do was sit in my hip pocket and he had gone in easily you know what i'm saying right so you know he had great talent but he wasn't smart he didn't he didn't understand the game and how to set up blocks and didn't have anybody to teach him Got it.
1: and then so and that that See, and you also had Tony Collins. I mean, he was another very good tailback.
2: Oh, Tony had people to teach him though, yeah, he, he listened to people,
1: okay?
2: You know, Bam taught him a lot. He listened to Bam. He listened to a lot of guys. and uh, he was there for some of the older heads to kind of learn. so Tony learned uh, and Tony could he Tony ran with his eyes, not his legs. Okay. I mean, he had, you know, don't get me wrong. He had, he had good speed, a lot better speed than Andy did. But Tony also ran with his eyes, and that's mm-hmm. the key. With a running back, has to run with his eyes, not his legs.
1: Right. And and at the same time, you guys had, you know, you always hear the phrase, "If I've got two quarterbacks, I have no quarterbacks." You guys had, little, I, mean, I don't know if you call it a quarterback controversy, but there was Tony Eason, who was the, you know, top pick, young gun guy coming in, and Grogan.
2: One of the, I think one of the biggest things that happened is about four or five days before the Super Bowl game, Mm -hmm. everybody found out that Grogan was going to be cleared to play in the game. And it was like somebody had injected him with some sort of pep pill. Everybody was excited. They Mm -hmm. were ready for Grogues to get in. But Les Steckle convinced Coach um, Raymond Barry that Easton should be the starter. And when that happened, it was like somebody had popped the balloon.
1: And mm. Everybody's
2: hopes went down.
1: I'm curious, like, when you look at – do you watch much NFL today? Like, do you watch every game? Or...
2: No. no. No? Okay. like ruined – ruined the game, especially. It's awful.
1: Just taking away – lineman's ability to do their job offense
2: is supposed to be the attacker
1: do you are you annoyed by some of the rules like protecting the quarterback oh yeah yeah. they they really take defensive backs are the guys that really
2: really messed over i mean they've given offensive lineman now heck you can bear hook a guy now and get away with it that's all you know you don't you know there's no athleticism now to be an offensive lineman you know, you don't nobody runs, nobody really goes. Well, I guess Larry Allen was the last really good guard that I, I mean, I think my kind of guard. I loved watching it now. When Larry Allen played, I'd watch the Cowboys. I watched I liked watching him play. I thought he was a great guard.
1: Yeah. He yeah. was the complete package, kinda of like you were the, the ability to run black. He was a good player
2: and a lot run. bigger than me. But yeah. he can but he was uh well, he was the real deal, and um but these these guys, you know that, that, that somebody we were somewhere, and some guy had been talking about how long how many guys how many consecutive plays this guy had run in his career and and how he you know nobody had ever played that many plays without you know and I looked at this game film, I looked over at my butt. as a shit. If we'd play like that, we'd have played many games consecutive too. And ain't nobody hits anybody anymore. You know, <laughs> the only way you get hurt is if you trip over a grass and sprain your ankle. You know, <laughs> and people hit each other. You know, it's just
1: you know. Yeah. I, well, and you answered one of my questions, which was going to be who were the guards. You know, since you retired uh, after the '85 season, who are the guards you like watching? Obviously, Larry Allen's one of them. Um, any other guys in, you know, kind of that period of time that stood he's out to you? He's the
2: team? one I know by name. There are others that I enjoyed watching, but he's the one that I particularly enjoyed watching.
1: Sure. I, I liked
2: watching. He, he had a main streak in him. He liked to hit yeah. folks. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've always, you know, offense is the attacker. You know, uh, and right now, you, you wonder – you know, in today's game, what would happen to a defensive lineman if an offensive lineman came off the ball and popped him right in the mouth? How would he react?
1: Yeah. Don't and they know.
2: got, line, you know, these linebackers back there playing five yards off the ball and all they do is run from sideline to sideline. What if an offensive guard came off the ball and popped him right in the mouth and all you have to do is... To separate the gap where the opening is separate that gap run out right that linebacker you don't even have to block them you've gained four yards right this is not a i don't find the game very interesting myself yeah
1: interesting Of course
2: now i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a, a blue collar worker i'm a redneck <laughs> you know, i'm not a, a urban preppy that uh pays to go to the game and then the only thing they understand about the game is how high a guy jumps and how he leaps and how he somersaults.
1: Right. That
2: doesn't impress me. It impresses them because they know nothing about the game.
1: Right? Who would so they?
2: they? They've taken the game from the blue collar guy and giving it to the yuppie so they can buy press boxes or whatever they call those
1: things. Yeah, those luxury suites luxury space yeah. uh, it's it's been such a pleasure having you on on the show um i thought it was very telling that you know, that uh you know none other than bear bryant said you were the greatest offensive lineman he ever watched play it's pretty I high <laughs> what did he tell you we were
2: going out to play texas
1: in the cotton bowl my senior year
2: and i'd gotten all these letters from different pro teams and i sure. yeah, said what are you going to do after the game?" i said well dad i guess you know, I'll just wait till after the game and I'll decide. He said, why don't you ask Coach Bryant to set up a meeting after he gets back from Dallas and see if he would recommend an attorney. So I get down to Alabama. We're going, walking into the first meeting. He should walk out of his office. There's Coach Bryant. So I looked at Coach Bryant and said, Coach Bryant, I don't want to talk to you now, but after we get back from Dallas, would you mind if I came in your office and and uh, you would give me some advice about who I should hire as a, an attorney? Because uh, it looks like I may get drafted. And Coach Mount looked at me and the way he did, and he said, shit, John, you ain't good any, enough to need no damn lawyer. <laughs> well, that's what he told me. <laughs>
1: that's funny well that's great well john hannah thank you so much for coming on the show love hearing the stories about growing up in alabama uh your your years at alabama obviously some of the craziness in new england but you know overall what you know a hell of a career i mean it's it's no surprise that sports illustrated called you the greatest offensive lineman to ever play it's been a real pleasure having you on the show thank you for having me appreciate it sorry it took so long (laughs) It's, it's, it's been a pleasure thank you john and thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley band brought us in, and the suburbs with life is like are gonna take us out. Speak to you next time.
0: Life life. like
1: what it is. Life
2: is like